Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. I can tell you a finance degree could be helpful as it relates to tracking your money and making sure that cash flow is good and making sure that the financial health of your business is good long term. That's where a lot of investors really stumble. They know how to make money and they know how to talk to people and they know how to write deals and they know how to talk to sellers and they're really good at negotiating, but they're not great at the at like tracking their money and understanding, you know, cash flow and balance sheets and and P&Ls. They just don't have that background. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being back here for another replay of my live Q&A that we do on Wednesdays, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. And this was a really, really good one. We talked about being an investor as a college student. What does that look like? Should you wait? Should you save money? Wait till you graduate? Should you just dive in and go for it while you're in college? Uh, we also talked about the best way to look for buyers. As a wholesaler, when we get deals under contract, we need to find buyers for those deals. Other real estate investors, house flippers and landlords. And then we we also talked a little bit about creating a team that works together when you have that acquisition side and the dispositions and they're not talking to each other and they're not agreeing and they're blaming each other. It can happen as you grow. So we talked about how to have specifically those two departments work together in harmony so that everyone profits and the company grows and you scale and you're profitable. So we talked about a lot of stuff, including those things, and I appreciate you being back for it. I'm not going to wait any longer. Let's dive into the episode. Okay, we are live. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, back as usual on a Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I'm here every week. If you're just stumbling onto this for the first time, uh, we're here every week and I answer your questions. So if you're a real estate investor, you're trying to grow your business or even start your business and you don't know where to go, you don't know how to start, you have questions, you don't know where to get answers. That's exactly uh, why I am here. And so hopefully you guys are, um, oh, hang on, I didn't turn my video on. There we go. So hopefully you guys are logging on here and taking advantage of asking uh, questions. So that's, that's what I do every week for you. If you do miss it for some reason, you can always go to my podcast, uh, which you can find at juststartrealestate.com. Go there. And on Thursdays, I do the replay of this. And it's like a week or two delay. But you can still go and check out uh, past uh, episodes and, and, and listen to people's questions and get your questions answered. But if you log on here live with me, uh, you can, we can interact directly. And a lot of times when you ask me questions, and I get questions throughout the week, and we sort of put those together for, for Wednesday nights. But it, a lot of times when I answer those questions, there's follow-up questions. And there's things that I would want to ask that person to further clarify what their situation is. And so if you log on on Wednesdays live, you can ask me a question. I can ask a follow-up question and we can have that dialogue and really dial into your problems and get it solved. So to that end, if you have questions, please post them in the chat 
anytime you want, and I will move those to the front of the queue and we'll start answering your questions live. Now, if you are running a business and you're struggling to get traction, maybe you, you're doing a couple of deals here and there, and you just don't know how to put the systems and the processes, and you don't know what to do to really ramp up and take it to the next level, you can always work with me. And I offer that to a select amount of people uh, every couple of times a year we do this. So if you want to look into that, if you want to see what it would look like to work with me one-on-one or work with me directly, not necessarily one-on-one, it's a little bit more of a coaching group coaching thing. But if you want to see how to work directly with me, go to sevenfigureinvestor.com. And that's the the uh, number seven spelled out. So sevenfigureinvestor.com. If you go there, you can see what it takes and what it looks like and what is covered when you get into my uh, coaching group. So that's an option for you. You don't have to. You can log on here on Wednesdays and ask me all the questions you want within the time frame that we have. All right. So I'm going to dive into these questions. Last week, and I think even the week before, we had a lot of people live asking questions. And so some of the questions that I had set aside to answer that people had emailed to me or DM'd me during the, during the week, I didn't get to them. <clears throat> so let me see if I can get through some of those. And like I said, if you guys have questions, though, fire away and we'll get to those too. Okay, first question that uh, I, got, I think I got this a couple of weeks ago, actually. Now, I'm a 19-year-old college athlete who has recently become very interested in real estate investing. I'm wondering what is the best way to get started? Should I focus on a particular degree? Should I save up money, learn everything I can about real estate, and then be ready to invest once I graduate? Okay. So first of all, the first thing that you asked, or uh, the second thing technically, is should I focus on a particular degree? Um, I, I don't think so. If, if I was going to give you one to maybe think about, it would be a business degree, like a business administration, business management. If they have an entrepreneurial degree, I don't know if they have those in college now. I think some colleges do and some universities do, but I would direct you toward uh, business or finance, and but but I'll be honest with you, I don't think either one or go, are going to make a huge huge difference in your success or failure in real estate. However, as someone who did not uh, major in finance in college, I can tell you a finance degree could be helpful as it relates to tracking your money and making sure that cash flow is good and making sure that the financial health of your business is good long term that's where a lot of investors really stumble they know how to make money and they know how to talk to people and they know how to write deals and they know how to talk to sellers and they're really good at negotiating but they're not great at the at like tracking their money and understanding you know cash flow and balance sheets and and P&Ls they just don't have that background and so they trust it to somebody else and they they don't check on it enough and they can't do any sort of audits or quality control because they don't know it. Okay. So uh, it's just like when you take your car to a mechanic, if you don't know how to fix cars, you just drop it off. You tell them what noise it's making and you hope that they can fix it. And then when they're done and they say they fixed it, you just say, okay, and you drive away. Sometimes people treat their business that way because they don't understand finances well enough. So again, if you want to pursue that you know, degree and you want to get something in finance or just general business, that can be helpful, but it's not going to make or break. So if you make the wrong decision on a degree, don't worry. It's not going to stop you from success in real estate. Um, I'm going to save the best way to get started. The first thing you asked, I'm going to move on to the next question uh, real quick. Should I save up money, learn everything I can about real estate, and then be ready to invest once I graduate? I don't think you have to wait until you graduate, honestly. 
saving money is fine, but you know, there's ways to get money for real estate transactions. So, you know, if you're listening to this, you don't necessarily need a lot of your own personal money to do real estate. And, uh, but if you have it, that's great. It certainly doesn't hurt, but it's not going to stop you. So don't feel like you have to save money before you get started. And then as far as, you know, waiting until you graduate, I don't know what your course load looks like. I don't know how busy you are and how many hours of your week it takes to, to do what you have to do for your classes. So, I would say you can start while you're in college. And I, I've, I know people who have, I've interviewed people who have been there very successful and they started in college. And before they graduated, they had this real estate business that was doing really, really well. But if you're barely kind of getting through college and maybe you have to work to pay for college and college is, you know, the studying and, and going to class is taking up all your time, don't add stress to it by trying to do and learn real estate and go out there and, and perform in the real estate world. Uh, it'll be a little bit stressful, probably won't be the best way to get started. But if, you, if you're the kind of college student where maybe it's getting paid for for you and the class load is just not that crazy and you've got all kinds of time, then I would say get started right away. And the best way to get started really is to find a mentor or a coach, somebody who can help guide you and tell you what you should be doing first, second, and third, so you don't waste a lot of time and or money. Um, but honestly, you can get started in a lot of ways. Rentals are a great way to get started because once you find the rental and get it renovated and rented, it's hands-off. It's sort of hands-free. So you could do as many of those a year as you're comfortable with and just realize once they're rented, you shouldn't have too much involvement if you use a management company. So that's really attractive to a lot of people when they're either busy with their job in college or just don't have a lot of free time because maybe they have a family and kids and things like that. So rentals can be good for that reason. Um, flipping and wholesaling can certainly work. Wholesaling is probably going to take more time out of your day and out of your week than flipping would. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we can get you know deep into that if you want to talk about flipping and wholesaling. Um, but probably uh, buying rentals and just you know, kind of being real cautious about how you do that and how much time you're spending on that while you're in college. And then once you graduate, you have these assets that are making you money every month and hopefully appreciating in value if you bought them right. So that's probably how I would get started if I were you in college, not knowing, you know, how much free time you have available. If you had just tons and tons and tons of free time and your parents are paying for your college and you have some money set aside, that could change the answer a little bit. But without knowing all those details, I would probably push you toward rentals and just keep it manageable and slow until you get out of college. Okay, next question. I'm about to put an offer into a wholesaler for the first time. They said they need an offer, air quotes, offer by a certain time. Does that mean an offer letter or just a price? I'm unsure if this is as simple as texting them a number or as complicated as there being forms that I need to uh, locate, fill out, and email over to them. It's a great question. And it really depends. I, you know, I can tell you how I do it in my business and I don't know how every wholesaler runs their business. So it's impossible to say with a hundred percent certainty, but here's what I would be willing to bet. Having been a wholesaler for the last six years, doing tons of deals and working with other wholesalers from all over the country. If I had to guess when they say they want their offer by a certain time, they want you to probably email them the the number that you would be willing to pay for the property. I, I think an email is sufficient when they're looking for an offer by a certain time. Now, that being said, you should go onto their website or wherever their presence is on the internet. And, and they should have something that tells you how to place an offer. Like, what do you have to do to place an offer? They may tell you, here's the form, download it, fill it out with the offer and, and you know email it back. 
I don't think it's going to be that sophisticated. I think they want to know what everyone's offer is. And then once they decide who they're going to sell to, they'll send you a purchase agreement to sign and, and execute everything or an assignment contract if they're assigning the contract. So my guess is you're good enough. Um, you probably even could text them, but I would email them. Uh, if it were me, I would email them the number that you're willing to pay for the property. And I think that's all that they're looking for at this point. And then again, as soon as they decide, because it's probably like a highest and best situation. So if they're saying they want an offer by tomorrow at noon, for example, they're telling everybody that. And so they're going to get a bunch of offers theoretically tomorrow at noon, and they're going to look at those and decide which offer they like the best. And then they're going to call that person and say, hey, we're going to go with you. We're going to you know, email you the assignment contract, just sign it and get your deposit over to me. That'll be the next thing is if they accept your offer, they're going to want uh, a deposit. And so you're going to have to be ready for that. And I, everybody's different, but I'm assuming, you know, depending on how much the house is and what state you're in, they're probably going to want between one and $3,000 down probably. So just be prepared for that. Uh, and it's a lot, it's very similar to a normal real estate transaction. When you're buying a house, right? And you get an accepted offer, you have to put EMD down. It's the same thing. Uh, they're going to want a deposit just to make sure that your offer is firm and you know, you're not going anywhere. So I think email them a price. I think they'll be more than sufficient. Okay. Uh, next question. I have a great acquisitions manager who, let's see, I have a great acquisitions manager and an equally great dispo guy, but they don't work well together. Both of them fit the company culture pretty well, but have different work ethics. Do you have any suggestions for helping to make this a stronger relationship? This is actually, this is the first time I've ever, I think anybody's ever asked me this question this way. And I'll be honest, a lot of the questions that I answer, even on this q and I've been asked by people in the past, probably multiple times, but this is kind of a new one for me. And I think it's a, it's a really great question. And it shows that you, you're starting to get what has to happen within a wholesaling company for it to be highly successful. And one of the most important relationships in, an, in a wholesaling company is the relationship between the acquisitions manager and the dispositions manager, or whatever you call them, dispo guy, right? That your dispositions and acquisitions, those two uh, positions need to talk to each other because what can happen, and this happened in my company, so I know that it happens and, and it's going to happen for anybody who starts growing a wholesaling company, eventually you'll run into something similar. And here's what it is. The acquisitions person will go out, negotiate with the seller, spend time, spend energy, build rapport, break down all of the objections and get that contract. And they will have worked for it, worked hard for it. And they're going to take it back to the office and they're going to give it to the dispositions person. And they're going to say, go sell this thing, right? The dispo guy is going to look at it and he's going to run his numbers. And hopefully you have your dispositions person run numbers separately from acquisitions. So there's no you know, influence at all. Then he'll run his numbers or she'll run her numbers and they'll come up with something completely different than the acquisitions did. And they're going to say, I can't sell this property. This was a terrible contract. They, they paid way too much or it's in an area that no one wants or whatever, right? And so they'll go out and with this mindset that they're not going to be able to sell it. And meanwhile, the acquisitions person is going on the next appointment, assuming that they're going to make a certain amount of money on that last deal. And they're not talking to each other. So the dispo person's telling you know, me or you or whoever owns a company like, hey, these contracts are crap. And the acquisition is going to come to you separately and say, 
our dispo person is doing a terrible job selling these contracts. Like they're not getting enough money for them or they're not getting them sold. And they're kind of going to be coming to you for this, but they need to talk to each other. When the acquisitions person decides what they would uh, offer on a house, and if your acquisitions person is doing a really good job upfront and doing their own due diligence, they know before they go on that appointment, what they're going to offer or the most that they're going to offer for that property. So they should be reaching out to the dispo person before the appointment and saying, Hey, this is the house that I'm going to go see tomorrow or two days from now or on Friday or next week or whatever. Here's what I'm, here's what I found. And this is what I'm planning on offering them. Can you run your comps? Can you run your analysis? Tell me what you think the ARV is. Tell me what you think our buyers will pay for this. And let's collaborate and make sure that the number that we come up with, we both agree is a good number. And so when that acquisition person goes out, he goes out with, or she goes out, whatever, with way more confidence that when they get that under contract and they bring it back, we're going to be successful. And the dispositions person, when that contract comes in, they can say, yep, I've already looked at this one. I talked to the acquisitions person. We both are on the same page. This is a good contract. And you eliminate them coming to you and complaining about each other. And then you also eliminate them being frustrated with each other and maybe one or both of them leaving the company eventually because they don't think the other person is doing a good job. Sometimes it's a miscommunication. If the acquisition person looks at a property and says, you know, this thing, when it's fully renovated or whatever, it can sell for 200000 If the dispo person looks at it and says, that'll never sell for more than 100000 in any condition, like that's a humongous gap. Somebody is probably way, way off on their calculation. Like they're totally missing it. And if they can work that out before the offer is made and the contract is written, so much smoother, so much better. Everyone's happier. You make more money. So somebody is wrong in that scenario when there's that big of a gap. So they need to come together and figure it out. And if they can't figure out and the one person says, nope, it's definitely 200. And the other person said, nope, it's definitely 100. Then that's a coachable moment. You can go in there as the owner of the company and say, hey, guys, let's take a look at this. And you can sort of you know, resolve that, that issue. And hopefully they'll learn something when you resolve it. And then next time they come together, they'll be smarter, better, more educated about how to do that. So those two positions must, must talk. And you said they have in the question here, um, they both fit the company culture. That's great. But they have different work ethics. That is a little bit of a problem, okay? Because they both should have a good work ethic. So if they have different work ethics, I don't know what that means exactly. Like one works in the morning, one works at night. Because if you're telling me one is a hard worker and one is not, the not hardworking person, if they still fit your company culture and they're not hardworking, like obviously that's a problem. I don't think that's what you're saying, but I don't know if I, that would be a follow-up question. What do you mean different work ethics? I don't care. They don't both have to have the same work ethic necessarily, but they have to understand how to comp properties and they have to come together on that. If one of them is a you know, harder worker than the other, that's that's whoever manages them has to deal with that. It, it shouldn't necessarily make a difference. Usually acquisition people are very high energy, very high strung, you know, very driven. And that's fine. Dispo, you know, a lot of times are that too. They don't have to be. So I don't know that that matters so much. What matters is that they talk, that they collaborate, and they come to an agreement on on properties before it gets too far in the process. So um, I don't know about the work ethics thing. I would need to hear more about that. Uh, but their relationship will be stronger if they understand where each other is coming from. And they'll do that by communicating. They have to communicate. And if that means you have to mandate 
that they sit down every week for an hour and go over all the deals. And the Dispo person can tell them why they're struggling to sell a property because acquisition people, they're wired to get contracts. That's it. And sometimes they have a tendency to overlook some of the warts on a property because they just want to sign that contract and move on. Like a lot of times they're getting compensated by how many deals they get. Right. So, they need to sit down and understand if there's something fundamental or, or even like physically with a property, if there's something fundamentally wrong with the properties that they're getting, let's just say, for example, they're getting them in a neighborhood or a part of the town that just you can't sell. No buyers want it. It's just like kind of, you know, a dead zone as far as selling. They need to communicate that to the acquisitions person so that they can be on the lookout for that and either make way, way lower offers in those areas or just avoid them and say, we can't, we can't do business here. Nobody wants to do business here. So I think understanding each other will make the relationship much, much better. And if they're both feel like they're like rowing in the same direction, that'll make a big difference too. But I would, I would really struggle with jumping in there and trying to fix their relationship. I think they should have to fix it. Like they're presumably adults, right? So they can go in and have those conversations and they need to work it out. And if they just can't work it out, you get involved. But if they can't work it out and you have to get involved, you may not have the right people because they're not taking any ownership. They're not trying to see the other person's point of view. Ultimately, long-term, they're probably going to be an issue for other people in the team too, right? So I would say, make them work together, make them go through comps, make them run property analysis together, make sure they're both on the same page with what a property will sell for and what kinds of properties will sell and which ones won't. And then make some determinations about how they approach the ones that are not selling. What do we do to either change our price, change our strategy, or maybe avoid those properties altogether? Okay. We have a question from Michael Robertson. What's up, Michael? Okay. I have, let's see, I've had success in acquisitions. What marketing works best for your dispositions? Realtors, um, Facebook, buyers list. Okay. So when you say you've had success in acquisitions, it sounds like you're getting deals. That's what you're telling me. And uh, what marketing works best for dispositions? So uh, just in case someone listening doesn't know what he means by what marketing works best for dispositions, I what I'm hearing and what I'm assuming you mean here is how are you finding buyers? What's the best way for your dispo person to find buyers for your deals? Without a doubt, the best way is a buyer's list. So as a, as a wholesaler, Michael, you really have to understand that other than your processes and your systems that you've put in place that are maybe really effective and efficient for your business, probably the single biggest and most valuable asset inside of a wholesaling company is your buyer's list. It just is. I've said it many times. If I sold my company, a lot of what I am going to be selling it for has to do with my buyer's list and how good my buyer's list is. And here's why. Five years ago, six years ago, when I started wholesaling, I was a flipper before that for about six years. When I started wholesaling, we would make a certain amount of money on average on houses that we were selling. And there was a small handful of people that I was selling to. And they were mostly house flippers and landlords that I had created relationships with for the first six years of my, of my time in real estate. And so I reached out to the people I knew and said, hey, I've got this property. Um, here's what I'm asking. What do you think? And they would buy them. And then I, I started my business that way, my wholesaling business. 
But after a couple of years of building my buyers list and refining it and finding better and better buyers, I haven't sold a property or assigned a property to one of those buyers that bought my first properties in that first year I was wholesaling. I've not sold to them in over five years. And they're still buying properties in my market, but they're not buying from me because they can't afford to buy from me anymore. The buyers that I have on my list now are paying way, way more than my original buyers will pay for a house, more than they will tolerate for the price. So I know they're still buying and I, I run into them every once in a while and I'll say, hey, man, you still, you still flipping houses? I haven't heard from you in a while. And they're like, we can't pay your prices. Like we just can't, it's too high, right? And, and a part of me feels bad because they're friends of mine and I would love to be able to help them in their business. But the other side of me is like, then I'm doing a great job as a business owner, a wholesale company, because I've built a buyer's list that's so strong and they're paying so much more than what I was able to get five years ago. So even if I do the same amount of deals as I did five years ago, which I'm doing a lot more, but if I were doing the same amount of deals, I would make more money because back then, maybe I'm getting 10,000 on average for a contract and now I'm getting 15 or 20. And it's all because of my buyer's list. So the best place is your buyer's list, but you have to focus on it. You have to cultivate it. You have to nurture it. You have to make sure that that is a focus of your business all the time. And there's there's strategies around how do you blow up? I blew up my business or my buyer's list one in one year from about 400 people to about 3000 people. And I've continued to do that and grow that list. So there's definite strategies behind that, that we don't have nearly enough time in this Q&A to, to talk about. Um, so buyer's list is best. Um, realtors can be great, but here's a little secret. I don't know, uh, Michael, which better list equal higher prices, 100%. And here's the thing, my list and your list will and should too eventually, if it doesn't now, I have not just people who are local to me, right? Because I can see them at the local RIA. I can go find those people, but it's not just people in my local market. I have people on my list because I've used certain strategies to find them who are in California, New York, Chicago, Texas, all over the place. And some of them are hedge funds. Hedge funds have a much, much different business model than your average house flipper or landlord. Trust me, locally in my area, if people aren't getting 15 to 20% ROI on their investment, they're like not even interested at all. Hedge funds don't need 15 or 20%. Like they're trying to get like seven, eight percent, six, seven, eight percent. So we're selling properties to hedge funds that A, our buyers wouldn't buy anyway, right? It's just not enough ROI. Or B, they're buying properties in neighborhoods that the local investors are not interested in because they have local bias. They know that this one town is just sort of crappy and like, eh, I don't want to buy there. But a hedge fund out of New York, they don't necessarily have that local bias. They look at numbers. They're very number driven. And if they see they can get an eight or nine or 10% return, they're buying it. And they're going to put those on their books because even if it's a dud, doesn't matter. They're buying thousands of houses a month. So if one of them is a dud, they don't care. As long as they're averaging that six, seven, eight percent, they're totally fine. So you're hundred percent right. Better buyers list is high means higher prices. And I'll tell you, it's hard to just cherry pick who are the good buyers right off the bat. You don't know until you get them on your list, you start sending them properties, and then you see who's actually buying. So what you have to do is build a big buyers list. And I don't think like some people have these vanity buyers lists where they have 10,000, 20,000. That's ridiculous. You don't need that many people because not that many people are going to buy. 
But because you don't know who the good ones are right off the bat, you have to build a, a, a large buyer's list, see who's buying. And then you can use software like AWeber, MailChimp, you know, all these different software where you can send out mass emails. All of those services will tell you who on your list hasn't opened up an email, for example, for the last six months or the last year. And so maybe once or twice a year, you go in and say, do a list, sort it. Who hasn't opened up any of my mail for the past six or eight months? And you get a list, just delete them, take them off, right? So you're like, you have this rose bush and you're just pruning it all the time. You're just, you're just cutting it back. So all you have is beautiful roses on it. And these are buyers, people who are buying houses from you. But in order to do that, you have to grow your list big prune it back, grow it big, prune it back. So eventually, maybe you only have three or 4,000 people on your list ultimately, but a good chunk of those are actually buying houses from you. That's the, that's the secret. So buyer's list, 100% the way to go. Um, realtors are great. Relationships with realtors, that's, that's a great way to go. And depending on where you are, Michael, I don't know where you live in the United States, but in most places, uh, believe it or not, you can, as a wholesaler, you can list properties on the MLS. You have to get permission from the board of realtors. You have to approach them and sort of present it in the right way. Okay. But you can do it. I know people all over the country who are listing deals that they don't own on the MLS. And that really is like, really like the best buyers list, right? The best and biggest buyers list in the world is the MLS. So if you can make that happen, you can build your buyer's list like that. And, and we sell for way more when we start putting things on the MLS, way more. And we don't always own them. So that's just a little pro tip. But the, again, if you want to get into these kind of things and really kind of next level it and take your business to someplace where you just can't get it on your own, go to sevenfigureinvestor.com. I have a program, I have a strategy, and I have a solution for you, but you got to go there and sign up. I can't help everybody. I don't have enough time in my day. So I only help people who kind of come to me, reach out and take those steps necessary. But if you go to Seven Figure Investor, it's spelled out the, the number seven, sevenfigureinvestor.com. You can go there, sign up, and we can work together and we can talk about this kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, okay. Michael, you're in Pensacola. Uh, you can do it in Pensacola. I know for a fact, right? So you can't go in there like a bull in a China shop and say, Hey, board of realtors, I'm going to list a bunch of properties that I don't own. Is that cool? Like they'll say, no, you have to present it in the right light. You have to go about it in a strategic way so that you don't freak them out about the concept. But I know people doing it in, in Pensacola. So you hundred percent can do it. And I think that's a game changer for a lot of people. <clears throat> okay. Next question. I'm going to do one more and I'm going to be kind of fast here. Um, okay. I'm working. I'm totally new in real estate investing. I've been spending the last months reading many books, listening to many podcasts and getting psyched about the possibilities of real estate. We're pulling together questions to interview our potential team. I would love some feedback on things that you have asked your team members in the past, things to look out for, red flags of who not to hire. Here's who we're looking to hire on our team. Let me know your advice on top things to ask these candidates. Okay, <clears throat> you're totally new to real estate. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. You don't need a team right now. You do not need a team. Your first, your first concern and your only concern right now is driving leads, making offers, and getting contracts, you know, buying houses, right? Leads, offers, buying houses. That is what you should focus on, then build the team. Now, maybe you're just asking me just ahead of time, like, hey, I'm going to do this eventually. But what I see too often are 
people who are new like you, and they think they need this whole team built around them. They need a CRM that's got all kinds of automations. And, you know, they're like putting the cart way ahead of the horse. When you start in real estate, think of it this way. When you start in real estate, you're underwater, right? Your knowledge and everything you like, you're, you're behind, you're underwater. And when you're underwater, what's the one thing that you, you can't forget about? Like you, it's on your mind constantly when you're underwater, if you don't have an oxygen tank on the one thing you're thinking about is breathing. It's about oxygen, right? Within a minute, you, you want oxygen and you should treat your business the same way. You, your oxygen for your business are leads. If you're not getting leads, you are, your business is dying before it even starts. It's dying. And if you're not making offers, you're kidding yourself about being in in the real estate business. So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to ask you to really put it on the shelf. Take it as information that's good for another day. But right now, how do you get leads? How many offers are you making a day? I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not making five offers a day, 10 offers a week, 15 offers a week at the minimal, minimum, minimum, minimum. I'd like to see five offers a day. If you're not doing that, all the team in the world is not going to help you. Your CPA will have nothing to do at the end of the year because you don't have any deals, right? Your attorney, your real estate agent, property managers, none of them have anything to tell you because you don't have any deals, right? So this is like what happens after the deals start coming in. So focus on deals first. I'm telling you, I know it sounds simplistic and maybe you think I'm just being a little, you know, kind of silly about it. I'm not. I've seen people not ever get started because they worry too much about what they have to do a year from now. And they didn't focus on what they need to do today. So today you need leads, but I'll answer you real quick. CPA tax advisor. uh, I would ask them what percentage of their clients are real estate investors. And if you don't hear a number higher than 25%, go to somebody else. That's a CPA you don't want to deal with. Preferably you want to hear more than 50% or even 100% would be great, but at least 25% or 50% or more, that's what I would, that's the one question, right? Like how many real estate investing clients do you have? So um, most of them don't have any or very few. And so they're not focusing on those specific strategies. Um, An attorney, honestly, I, I don't know. I don't really have a great use for an attorney. I have not had to use my attorney very much at all over the last 12, 13 years. So I would say find an attorney when you need one. Don't make that a priority in the beginning. Uh, real estate agent, I, hungry and young is really what I look for with real estate agents and so, and one that is friendly to real estate investors. The best way you can do that is go to a RIA, go to your local RIA and start talking to the real estate investors there because number one, they get it. Number two, usually the, the realtors who go there are not the ones that are just slammed with business. They don't have this humongous like, you know, buyers and sellers list. So I would go there and try to find someone who's maybe a little younger and really hungry and wants to work with investors. Those are always the best agents. Property managers, same thing. Ask them how many properties they're managing. If you're doing single family only, ask them what percentage of their portfolio is single family and how many they have, right? So you don't want someone that really only manages apartment buildings if you're going to be buying bungalows. So make sure that they're they're actually managing single family houses or the other way around. If you only have apartments or that's all you want to do, make sure they have experience managing apartment buildings. But I would say just make sure they have uh, experience in the kind of real estate that you're going to be buying and make sure that they have, I mean, they don't have to have thousands and thousands and thousands of doors, but 
you know, you want them to have more than 10 or 20 doors, right? So maybe a couple hundred, two to 500 at least that they're managing. So, you know, they have some experience. Um, contractors are interesting. Contractors, that's a whole episode. I don't even know if we have time for that. There's like a million and one things that I could tell you about hiring contractors that I've found over the years experience. Um, but I think the big thing is make sure you're getting multiple bids. Don't get one bid and hire that person. Don't hire a contractor because you get along with them. Don't hire a contractor because you don't have any other bids. Like get multiple bids, hire a contractor. If they're not working out, cut bait, you know, it's sort of like, you know, hire contractor slow, but but fire them fast when they need to be fired. So don't be in a, in a hurry to hire them and then keep them around forever. That's what most people do. They keep them around because they, they believe the stories that contractors are telling them. Contractors are a lot of times lying to you, unfortunately. And so you have to be quick and decisive with letting them go and going and find someone to replace them. But the contractor question, again, I, we could really talk about that for the next hour easily. So if you go and check out sevenfigureinvestor.com and it looks like something that makes sense for you, we can definitely, definitely start working on this and get it figured out. But I would say for the most part, um, maybe other than contractors, because when you start getting deals, you're going to want a contractor. But I would be looking for look, getting leads, making offers and trying to get deals, whether I had a contractor or not. Don't let that stop you. But it's definitely something you're going to need to do sooner than later. But man, leads and offers. That's your world right now. Leads and offers. Anything else is secondary. If you go to bed at night and you've not made five offers, that's not a great day. You need to make more offers. And that's how you should look at this, especially in the beginning when you're new. All right, Nick, what's up, man? Yeah, thanks. This is like kind of a, it's not really OG, but it's, it's about a year and a half old probably. Uh, how do you run your comps for your offer price? So, this is the last question, by the way. I said the last one was the last. This is the last, but I got I to gotta take care of Nick. He's my guy. Um, how do you run comps? MLS. I, I just do the MLS. I don't really buy in other states. Um, so if you do, I've, I've heard PropStream is great. Honestly, we use PropStream in my business, but I've never used it personally. My partner, who is more the sales guy of the company, he uses it. I don't really use it that much. And we buy locally. So my dispo guy uses... Uh, the MLS. And so that's uh, the MLS is always the best for running comps. They're always the best. I, you can name any software you want. And again, prop stream I heard is really, really good. You can ask any, anybody you want. MLS is king. It's, it's absolutely the best, but not, not everyone has that option. Either you're not a realtor or you're buying in states where you just don't have access. And so, you know, prop stream and those kind of services can be really good. But honestly, if you're going to be doing business in a place where you don't have MLS access, I say you go to charm school, go find somebody who has access and try to get them to give you access either as like an assistant access or something like I'm not going to tell you like the legality of doing that or the rules regarding that when it comes to realtors. I know it's frowned upon. What I'm saying is get access. If that means you have to become a realtor in that market, then, then do it. If you're just super charming, you can talk to people and, and make them want to help you, then go do that. I don't have a realtor's license. I have access to the MLS, right? You just need access. That's the bottom line. So MLS is always going to be the best man, always. But if you don't have it, Something like PropStream is the is a good second choice. Just try to get MLS access. That's that's the key to it. All right, guys, that's it for tonight. Uh, again, we're here every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You can go check out my podcast at Just Start Real Estate. We've talked a little bit about building a team. That last question was all about building a team. I should have mentioned I didn't. I wrote a book literally on how to build teams and scale your business up and what has to happen 
after you're a beginner, right? It's not necessarily about how to get started, but it's what do you do once you've gotten started, but you can't really scale up? How do you build a team? How do you put the right pieces in place to take it to that seven-figure level? The book is called Level Jumping. You can get it on Amazon. We're going to put a link to it here in the chat for you. Go grab that book. I'm telling you, that is the playbook for how I took my business from being a very small business, doing a few deals here and there, and how I ramped it up to doing 10 to 15 deals and a million dollars in gross profits in one year. So go grab that book, and that will give you a lot of the answers to the questions that I didn't have time for tonight. Okay, guys, uh, we'll see you next week. Get out there, like I said, to the last guy. Get out there and get started. Just start making offers, getting deals under contract. That's how you do this. Even when you're established and scaled up, making offers and getting deals. That's what this business is built on. Don't kid yourself. Get out there and do it. We'll see you next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.